Hey everybody, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to church today. Uh, hey, I just want to say thank you again, 9 o'clock service, for making space for each other, okay? How's the one chair rule going? There, is everyone observing the one chair rule? I had to scold my wife this morning because she <laughs> tried to sit too far from the neighbor. So just one chair, we're trying to make a little space for each other, and please remember, when you come to worship Faith Community Church, you, there's just no way for you to know what it took for your neighbor to get here this morning, okay? And your attention, your handshake, learning their name may mean more than you know, all right? So come every week, come just ready to take care of each other, watch over each other, sit on each other's laps, whatever it takes, okay? We're going to get it done in here, all right? All right, one public service announcement before we jump into our teaching time this morning. Uh, after a very long hiatus, it is my privilege to announce this morning the return of our Sunday morning prayer ministry here at Faith Community Church. It's been a long, the pandemic killed the prayer ministry. Today we resurrect it from the dead. So if you've been around Faith Community for a long time, you probably know that little room right over there as the Connections Center. Okay, well now, if you're new or you're just trying to find your way around Faith Community Church, you want to meet some leaders and find out how to get connected here, we invite you to join us in our volunteer hub, which is right across the hall over here. There's great food and great people. Henceforth, this room over here will be known as the prayer room. Has everybody got that? So if you, can, if you came this morning or any morning with a burden that needs prayer, you just want someone to pray with you for your family, yourself, the community, whatever's on your mind, there'll be prayer ministers in there ready to serve you. And if you're a leader at Faith Community Church, you see a backup over there, I want you to go over, I want you to shake a hand, I want you to introduce yourself, hey, my name is so-and-so, I'm a missional community leader or a member or an elder, whatever it is that you do here, could I pray with you? Looks like you're waiting and take care of each other. Because Has everybody got it? All right, well, let's continue with our teaching series this morning. We're going to pick up right where we left off in the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to be talking about what a human is, what angels are, what they have to do with each other, why we're here, what our destiny is, and why it matters that Jesus is the Son of Man. I said last week, one of the reasons I'm excited to teach in Hebrews is because it's like opening the mail from another universe, and today is going to be one of those days. Today at Faith Community Church, if this is your first time here, welcome. Today we are going down the rabbit hole together, okay? We're going through the looking glass. It's red pill, blue pill day at Faith Community Church. We're about to jump into the matrix together, uh, and we're all going to be okay. Uh, is, it, is that okay? Everybody say, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. That's on page 1001 if you want to borrow a Bible from under the chairs in front of you. And you're going to notice, if you were here last week, an immediate change in what we're reading this week. In chapter 1, uh, the author of Hebrews was eager to lift up for us the divine glory of the Son of God. And in chapter 2, he's going to turn our attention to the mystery of the Son of Man. Okay, so if you have it open in front of you, you, you may recall, you can see last week he piled up scripture after scripture after scripture to show us that in the Son, God himself has come and spoken a final word. And this week and next, he's going to take the same kind of care to show us the Son of Man in his full humanity. These are not two different people. 
The Son of God and the Son of Man, these are two natures in the one person, the Lord Jesus. And in the Son, we get a glimpse of the glory of God. We also see the dignity and the glory of humanity. And today we get to talk about what we were made for, why we don't see it, and what we see in the Son. What we were made for, why we don't see it, and what we see in the Son. That's right, I'm excited too. We actually have two scripture readings this morning because we are overachievers at Faith Community Church. So I'm, you have Hebrews chapter 2 in front of you. Just stay there. I'm going to actually read from Genesis first uh, and, then, and then Hebrews chapter 2. So here's our scripture reading. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 will be on the screen. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Take a look at verse 5. The writer of Hebrews says it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. What does that mean, the world to come? In this series, we've already said a little bit about heaven. We'll say more about it in the weeks to come. But today, I just want to be clear. When Hebrews talks about the world to come, it is actually looking out further than heaven to something even greater. The whole Bible actually looks out beyond heaven to something even greater that is coming, and that is a completely redeemed and remade creation. That has always been the promise and that has always been the goal. Heaven, as awesome as it is, and I would not for one minute want to dampen your enthusiasm for heaven, but as awesome as it is, heaven is actually not what we were made for. Genesis chapter 1, which we just read a moment ago, tells us what humanity was made for, to live and reign in peace and righteousness and justice with God. We bear the image of God and we were made to reign with him. That means, gentlemen, that all of your ambition to achieve and your desire to win and your drive to build something gets 
you know, really twisted and really out of whack and can damage a lot of things, but it's actually rooted in something really true, really powerful and good. That means that your ache for harmony, your, your empathy for the least and the lowest, the way you hustle to make your home a place of welcome, that can get, you know, it can make you a control freak. But the fact is that it's rooted in something profoundly deep about who we were created to be. Something greater than heaven is coming. The new creation, the, the world to come, as Hebrews calls it, is described like a greater and newer Garden of Eden. Okay, but this time it won't just be one couple, but all the nations gathered together with all of their gifts to make it glorious. Sometimes it's called the New Jerusalem, a city so beautiful, it's like a bride on her wedding day. And in that city, joy never ceases, the gates are never shut, from it, from it flows the radiance of God's glory. When you read the Old Testament, so if you took all the scriptures that talk about heaven and stacked them next to all the scriptures that talk about the world to come, it's actually not even close. When you read the Old Testament and you read about springs bursting forth in the desert and barren places becoming alive again, and you read about a, a better country and a homeland, when you, talk, when you read about uh, swords being beaten into plowshares, it's talking about the resurrection of the dead and the world to come. It has always been the plan. It always will be the plan. And in Hebrews, the world to come goes by a lot of names, a kingdom, that cannot be shaken, a homeland, a better country, the city of the living God, the assembly of the firstborn, a better resurrection, and so on. When Christians talk about heaven, we talk about it as going home. And that is totally appropriate, okay? So it's, it's totally appropriate. I talk about it that way. There's nothing wrong with talking about it that way. But here's a fascinating little tidbit. I think it's fascinating anyway. Revelation, the book of Revelation is full of fascinating things, but there's one scene, I believe it's in chapter 6, where we see people in heaven praying, and they're saying to God, how long, O oh Lord, until you bring your judgment on the earth? So that tells us, two, it hints at two things. Number one, that our loved ones in heaven experience the passage of time and are getting impatient. And number two, even heaven, as awesome as it is, will not be the end of your longing. And our loved ones, the church waiting for us in heaven, is longing with us for a world to come. And I just, that just blows my mind. I think that's awesome. Whatever is coming is even greater than heaven, and that's what we were made for. This is our place in the universe to rule and reign in peace and righteousness with God. And right now, we don't see that. That's in verse eight, we don't see it, why not? Well, this is what verses six, seven, and eight are talking about. Verses six, seven, and eight are a quote from the uh, eighth psalm. Psalm number eight. And what I want to do is share about Psalm eight in its original context, and then, let, then we'll talk about what Hebrews is doing with it, okay? So uh, Psalm eight is about the majesty of God 
and the dignity of people that David, who's the author of Psalm 8, is reflecting on Genesis chapter 1. And here's how it begins. It'll be on the screen behind me. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I, I, I love that verse, and it actually matters a little bit today. I love that verse because he's reflecting on the delight that God takes in destroying evil by the weakest means possible. Okay, in the Bible, when things get really, really bad and everything is dark and God looks cornered and everything's about to come apart, what does God do often? He gives someone a baby. You know, there, how, Seth and Samuel and John the Baptist and Moses and, of course, the Lord Jesus. God has destroyed empires with babies. And that's what David is reflecting on and delighting in. And so the psalmist is taking all of this in. He's looking at the sky. He's reflecting on the history of humanity. And he looks at the stars, and this is what he says next. And here's where Hebrews chapter 2 jumps in. He says, when I look at your heavens... And the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've put in place. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Who hasn't thought about that? I mean, raise your hand this morning if you've ever gotten out into the country or up to the boundary waters on a perfectly dark night with no light pollution and you lay back and you look at the stars billions and billions of stars and you see them and you've thought, just raise your hand. I am awesome. <laughs> I am incredible. I am the cat's meow. Just raise your hand. Have you, have you ever done? No. No, nor, healthy people do not do. You don't go to the Grand Canyon and say, I am such a big deal. Nobody ever, when, when we, when you take a step back and you see these things, everybody says, what are we doing here? Why are we here and why do we know that we're here? That's what the psalmist is doing. Why do, why do we matter to God? And Hebrews picks up that psalm and puts it to work to teach us about the Lord Jesus. And there's this tension in the psalm. So Hebrews 2, 7, you made him. So in, remember, in the psalm, him is humanity, okay? It's all of us. You made humanity for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And there's the tension crowned with glory and honor, everything under sub, in subjection to him, but he's lower than angels right now. What is, what is going on? To understand what's happening, we have to know a little about angels. So, red pill, blue pill time. Here we go. Who's excited to go down the rabbit hole? Uh, here's a little uh, that you need to know about angels, and this by no means is all of it. A short primer on the Jewish and Christian theology of angels. Angels are messengers of God. That's what the word angel means. It means messenger. They are God's attendants. They stand in his presence. 
They exist to serve at his command. They are described as fearsome warriors of light. And for that reason, angels are often referred to as the host of heaven. They have different rank and different functions, just like a military would. Whenever we're given glimpses into heaven, there are too many angels to count. Millions upon millions upon millions of angels, like the stars in the sky. We saw last week that angels are involved in all the great events of salvation, from creation to the giving of the law to the Garden of Gethsemane. Wherever you turn, angels are there at work. They guard the presence of God from intrusion. No one just walks willy-nilly into God's presence. And so upon our deaths, it is angels that gather us up and usher us safely through the veil. That's Luke 16, 22. We read last week in verse 14 that they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. There are strong indications in the Psalms and the prophets, but especially in the New Testament, that angels are assigned to our care. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, when Jesus is teaching the disciples about the gravity of receiving children. Please keep this in mind this morning. If you're a faith kids teacher or a refuge leader, or a little cubby, a wanna cubby leader or something, this is what Jesus says. See that you do not despise one of these children, for I tell you, in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father. The opening chapter of Revelation, chapters of Revelation, indicate that church congregations have an angel. Greg Beal, so let me just slow down. I, none of you fell over, and you're not understanding. <laughs> the book of Revelation, let me say it again. The book of Revelation indicates that church congregations have an angel. Uh, okay. You're not good, that's fine. <laughs> Greg Beal who's not a wacko, nutso-butso theologian, Greg Beale says this is a reminder that some aspect of our existence, some aspect of faith community's reality is already in heaven. And there are a lot of scriptures that indicate angels are present when the church gathers in Jesus' name. Okay. Okay, now you're getting it. That's good. One of the church fathers, a famous preacher named John Chrysostom from the 4th century, exhorts us to remember this when we come to church. Please remember this when you come next week. He says, reflect upon who it is you're near and with whom you're about to invoke the name of God. Angels, think of the choirs you're about to enter. Let no one have any thought of earth. Let him lose himself and every earthly thing and transport himself whole and entire, yes, into heaven. Let him abide there beside the very throne of glory, cover, hovering with the angels and singing the most holy song of glory. For if the very air is filled with angels, how much more the church. Ephesians 3.10 and 1 Peter 1.12. Present angels as spectators and witnesses to the drama of history and the drama of salvation and the church. They fight our battles, the Bible says, but on some level, they don't understand them. Angels don't need to be saved. And so 1 Peter says they look at what's happening and they long to understand 
What is God doing with these dirty, sweaty, hairy, carbon-based life forms that he has exalted above the heavens? The Bible also teaches that some kind of partial angelic rebellion has taken place under the leadership of Satan. And I have a bunch of scripture references if you want those. Most angels have remained faithful to God and those that remain continue to be unquestionable creatures of integrity, goodwill, and obedience. But it's always been the understanding of Jewish and Christian theologians that some significant part of the angelic host has chosen to inaugurate civil war with God. And all of humanity has joined the wrong side. The son, of man, the son of man, meaning us, betrayed the living God. When Adam said yes to the temptation of Satan, let, let this be a warning to everyone. When Adam said yes to the temptation of Satan and no to the word of God, he did so because he believed it would bring freedom. It's the same reason that we all do it. And instead, we have been plunged into slavery and death and corruption. We have been made lower than the angels. We can no longer stand in God's presence, they can. We can no longer look upon the face of God, they can. We've lost our place. When Christians talk about the fall, that's what we mean. Humanity has fallen from its place. We have lost our place in the universe. Rather than reigning with God, in peace and righteousness, we have become legally bound to death. Universalism, which we talked just a little bit about last week, universalism teaches that in the end, when everyone finally sees what's really going on, when they see the glory of the Son of Man, they'll repent. And I wish that that were the case too. But Jesus says that people love darkness. Universalism assumes that people will love the glory of the sun. Jesus promises they won't. Our hearts have become hardened, our minds have become darkened, and our will has become enslaved to death. This is why C.S. Lewis says, hell is locked from the inside. I don't actually think that's what the Bible teaches, by the way. But he's on to something very real. Jim Sire uh, puts it this way, hell is a monument to human dignity. That's probably a little closer to the truth. God has looked at humanity and said, for any who will not say to me, thy will be done, I will say to you, your will be done. If we refuse to bow the knee, God has told us, he has promised us what will happen. So Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? But there's more. So we're not the only ones who suffer from what we have done. Verse 8 says, all things were in subjection under us. That means that we've brought everything with us into this state of ruin and death. Creation itself is groaning because of what we've done. When it says that we've been made lower than angels, the Bible teaches that for a time, all of creation, instead of being under our authority, is actually now under the authority of angelic powers. 
Deuteronomy 32.8 uh, talks about it this way. Deuteronomy 32.8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Another way to, to say it is God has turned the administration of the world over to angelic principalities and powers. This does not, by the way, this does not in any way diminish the providential care of God. It just means that his providential purposes are being worked out through angelic powers. And so the church lives for a time behind enemy lines. We are caught in the midst of a spiritual battle. Has anyone ever wondered why when Jesus appears on the scene in the Gospels, all of a sudden, demons pop out from every rock and hole? Well, it's because in the incarnation of Jesus, God has declared open warfare back. Jesus came declaring the kingdom of God, the world to come, is here in me. And the spiritual world has like a meltdown during his lifetime. And we continue to live in this world. There's a pretty famous scripture in Ephesians chapter 6 where the apostle Paul says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6.12. When he says that, he does not mean that we don't wrestle with any version of flesh and blood evil. He's saying that when evil takes a flesh and blood form, war and cruelty and poverty and racism and so on, he's saying when those things take flesh and blood form, they're participating in something that is behind it, above it, and over it. There's something more than merely human going on in the world's problems. Now, here in the, in the modern Western world, we have trouble with that. Some of you are having trouble right now. I have trouble with that. Because the modern Western mindset is everything must have a natural explanation. Everything has to have a scientific explanation. And if everything has a natural cause, then things like crime, racism, abuse, poverty, and war, they also have a natural cause. People must have psychological problems. Uh, they weren't raised right. They weren't educated right. There must be some sociological problem. And if we could just find the problem, if we could just educate it out of people or do some social engineering, we would fix it. And there is some truth to that. Okay, if you're a student this morning studying psychology or sociology, there is a lot of legitimacy to those disciplines. However, as an explanation for the state of the world, it is not enough. And more and more people are beginning to understand that. Andrew Del Banco uh, teaches at Columbia University. He was named America's best social critic by Time Magazine. In the 90s, he wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And in the book, he says he's a secular liberal, but here's the first sentence. A great gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms 
We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as history goes on, it is getting harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychology or sociological adjustment. There is more going on than bad psychology or social misalignment. And the secular world lacks the resources to wrestle or to grapple with evil when it presents itself nakedly like it has in the last century. Tim Keller says this. One of the things we used to say is that only primitive and uneducated people would be racist or violent. Then we had two world wars when the world's most educated, most civilized civilizations nearly bludgeoned one another to death. Along came Marxism and they said the problem isn't psychological, it's sociological. The reasons for all our problems are social. So then they murdered millions and millions and millions of their own. He says, here are a few things to consider if you're wrestling with this vision of reality. Number one, would you consider that you're being just a little too simplistic? We want to be sophisticated and nuanced and brilliant. We don't want people to think we're primitive and crude. Isn't it possible that perhaps by not realizing the multidimensionality and spiritual depth of evil that you're being a little too simple? You're being just a little unsophisticated? Number two, if the Bible is right about this, and it is, he says, you will never be able to understand, let alone defeat, the darkness in your own heart in your family, in the city, and in the world if you close your mind to this. Secular people want to say it's all psychology or sociology, but we cannot account for the depth and pervasiveness of evil. The Bible does not have that problem. Here is where it came from. It comes from the will of two races of being that God created, angels and humans. Some of the angels fell and have become personal, supernatural sources of evil bent on destroying all that God loves. The other are humans who have sinned and so deeply corrupted our souls that we have become enslaved. So yes, psychological and sociological factors are real, but they're only aggravating what is already there. All they're doing is aggravating the innate selfishness and self-deception and blindness that's already there. So we were made to reign with God over all things, but that is not what we see. What do we see? Verse 9. We see him. So what Hebrews does is take Psalm 8 and gives him a name. It says Psalm 8 actually was about the Son of Man. We see him, verse 9, who also for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And he was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he would taste death for everyone. The divine Son of God that we've read about the last two weeks also became the Son of Man. The creator for a time became lower than the angels as well. And like Adam, Jesus was tempted as well. Satan came to Jesus and offered him dominion over every nation on earth. If Jesus would just become his servant. And this time the son of man refused. 
So Hebrews says he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The path of glory led through the cross. How can we reign in the world to come if we're still enslaved to death? And so Jesus has tasted death to snap the cord of death that binds us. It is inconceivable for Hebrews that we would turn away from that to trust angels. We're used to hearing the cross talked about in this way, and this is totally, totally appropriate. That Jesus carried my sin, he took my old nature to the cross, and there he put it to death. Here we see today that more than that has happened, that in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we have been returned to our proper place in the universe. We are getting tastes of that now. One day we will see it in full. Why does that, why should you care? Let me tell you a quick story. This is a story I've shared before, but it's worth repeating. This is from a, a guy named Mike Brooks. He's a pastor. He's writing about his daughter, Jody. Here's what he says. During her junior year of high school, my daughter, Jody, struggled to find a faith of her own. She wanted to know in her heart that all she'd been taught to believe was true and that Jesus Christ was real. Honestly, she headed down a really dark road. But God pursued her down that road. She eventually found a faith of her own, and when she graduated from high school, she said, I don't think God wants me to go to college right now. I want to take a year to go to Haiti, and I want to serve people in a medical mission there. I said, are you sure you want to do that? Jody, it's 3,000 miles from home. It's AIDS-infested in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and you know it's controlled by the voodoo religion, right? I know that, she said but I feel like God wants me to go and help. One of the hardest days of my life was putting my little girl on an airplane and watching it lift off, not knowing whether I'd ever communicate with her again. One night I got an email from Jody. She wrote, Dad, tonight has been one of the most remarkable nights of my life. I got called out to this hut to deliver a baby. Dad, I've only delivered once and that was with somebody. I'd never done it by myself, but I was the only one around. They called me and I went to this hut and there's this naked screaming lady on a dirt floor. I had a flashlight. I'm thinking, here I am, 18 years old, I'm in a hut in a third world country with a naked screaming lady and all I have is a flashlight and I don't know what to do. To make matters worse, this lady from the voodoo religion walked in the hut dressed in her voodoo garb and began to chant some spell. She put some kind of oil on the lady's head and then on the woman's belly while chanting this incantation. I didn't know what to do. Then she stood at the head of this woman and stared a hole through me. When I was getting ready to deliver the baby, I just looked straight at her and I started singing. I knew she didn't understand English, but I started singing. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. From heaven up love with wisdom. Power and love, our God is an awesome God. The voodoo lady became unglued. She grabbed all her stuff and ran. And I knew that baby was going to be born with the blessing of God, not the curse of Satan. This is Mike again. As I read Jody's email, my fatherly side thought, what are you doing in a hut with a voodoo woman? Get on a plane and come home. But as her brother in Christ, I thought, way to go, Jody. 
Way to make a difference with your life. Way to stop floating around like a cosmic accident. Thank you for putting your life in the hands of the one who holds your destiny in his hands. Why does it matter that the Son of Man sits on the throne of God? Because a teenage girl clothed in the righteousness of Christ and walking by faith in his word now has more power and authority than all the spiritual powers and principalities arrayed against her. And she can speak in his name and they flee. Because every Christian walking by faith and in the righteousness of Christ shakes the very foundations of hell. More is needed in the world than nice people. Your, your family, your children, your city, your school needs more than nice people. But people who see the sun, who know that that is my king, that is where I'm going, and right now I know who I am. How shall we escape, Hebrews says, if we neglect that kind of salvation? Here then is the divine answer to the question, what is man? As you go out into the night when the stars are shining bright above you and you begin to feel your insignificance, when the memory of your sin and the sin of the human race crashes down upon you with tenfold power to crush you, remember there is a, remember there is a man upon the throne of God and he is the measure of God's thoughts for you. And when we ask ourselves, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care, we can say, there he sits at the right hand of God with angels and powers and all the work of his hands made subject to him. As we go to communion this morning, we're gonna do something a little different, okay? I'm gonna invite you to stand, have your communion cup with you, your communion elements with you. We're gonna do something a little different, okay? It's already been a weird morning. Let's make it more weird. <laughs> this is what I wanna invite you to do. This is audience participation time. I want you to just take your hands and I want you to hold them out like this, okay? In uh, congregations in Asia, they have a way of praying together where they all just pray out loud all at the same time. We're gonna do that right now, okay? Everybody nod your head. You are gonna do this and we're all gonna be okay. This is what I want you to do. If you are here this morning, and you know you have never bowed the knee to the Son of Man, and you don't know what your destiny holds for you, but you see him now, and you want to be where he is, I want you to lay your life down before him now in prayer. If you have done that, I wanna invite you right now to just bring before the Son of Man every name that comes to your mind. Your children, your neighbors, your family, your school, whatever, whatever comes to your mind, I want you to do that right now. Ready, set, go.
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, it says that he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me all right I want to invite you to sing and as we do I want you to remember the things we've talked about to remember uh, with whom you are singing and in the presence of whom you are invoking the name of God together, let's lift our voices.